This episode is brought to you by Merrick Pet Care. We have a dog. Her name is Sasha. She's almost four. She's a standard poodle. She's got curly, fluffy, soft black hair, and she's very adorable. And she's a part of our family, and we care a lot about taking good care of her. And that includes feeding her high-quality dog food like Merrick's. Founded in Hereford, Texas, Merrick has been crafting high-quality dog food for over 30 years. Real is Merrick's recipe. They always use deboned meat, fish, or poultry as the number one ingredient. Merrick creates homestyle recipes like Real Texas Beef and Sweet Potato or Grammy's Pot Pie, so you can feel good about what you're feeding your pet. I mean, you know, you come home from being out, and your dog is there to greet you, and, like, that's one of the best things about having a pet, you know? You come home, the dog's happy to see you, and they're hungry. And you want to reciprocate that good feeling they give you. When you walk in the door, you want to give to them in the form of some high-quality food. So check out Merrick online or in your local pet store and look for their new packaging with real ingredients shown on the bag and inside it. It's very beautiful, surrounded by gardens. You walk down this walkway, uh, you're greeted by wholesome servers from all over the world, and they welcome you as if you are not just observers in a theatrical event, but really participants. This is Adam Platt. For over 20 years, he was a restaurant critic at New York Magazine. And in the summer of 2019, he went to the Copenhagen restaurant Noma, which often tops lists of the best restaurants in the world. Everybody's full of life, and everybody's beautiful, and the wine is delicious, and the guests seem to be handpicked, so you have this idea that you're one of the faithful. And you get swept up in it, and it's a, it's a great experience. Now, Adam's not someone who normally gets swept up in restaurants. He actually brought me out to eat with him once years ago because restaurant critics need to come with a group so they can order lots of items without attracting suspicion. And I watched as he sampled one dish after another, furrowed his brow, and shared his displeasure. It was always, meh, blah, ordinary. He's clearly hard to impress. And Adam was prepared to scoff at Noma when he arrived. But being there, he couldn't help but enjoy himself. Copenhagen, especially in the summertime, is a hugely seductive, wonderful place. It really is a stage set. One of the pleasures of Noma when I was there was the localness of it. One of the things on the menu when you were there was some sort of a savory tart with mold on it. Yes. They, like, grow the mold specifically to go on the food. Yes, a lot of mold. (laughs) This is The Sporkful. It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people. The chef, Rene Redzepi, opened Noma in Copenhagen, Denmark in 2003. He became known for using ingredients that are not just local to the area, but that he actually foraged himself, like seaweed, wild berries, and moss. He served insects, reindeer hearts, fish heads, and the bill would often run to more than $500 a person. He pioneered a style that would be copied by chefs around the world, and he got a lot of media attention for it. Noma has been named number one on the world's 50 best restaurants list five times, most recently in 2021. That same year, it won three Michelin stars, the highest possible rating. But around the same time it got that rating, high-end restaurants started to come under scrutiny for abusive conditions and the use of unpaid interns. Separately from that, many top chefs started speaking out about just how difficult it had become to keep their restaurants afloat. COVID had exacerbated issues that were building for a long time. There's also a shift in the culture. Instead of portraying fancy chefs as cool, shows and movies like The Bear and The Menu made them look ridiculous. In January, Rene Redzepi announced he'd be closing Noma in 2024, saying it had become unsustainable. He told the New York Times, quote, financially and emotionally, as an employer and as a human being, it just doesn't work. 
Many called it the end of an era for fine dining overall. And food writers at major outlets, places that had written glowing reviews of Noma years earlier, were now taking a different tone. Genevieve Yam wrote a story in Bon Appetit headlined, Fine Dining is Going Out of Fashion, and as an ex-chef, I'm Relieved. New York Times restaurant critic Pete Wells wrote, quote, At this point, expensive restaurants have gotten so much bad press that I know people who wish that whole end of the restaurant business would disappear. So, is it possible to run a high-end restaurant that turns a profit and treats people fairly? And is there a point in trying? Or should these places just disappear? Thing is, it was an experience. I mean, you've come long ways, you're a pilgrim, it's all new. Here again is restaurant critic Adam Platt. Now, as you might have guessed, I have not been to Noma, so I wanted to hear more about what it was like to eat there. Why, for years, everyone said it was so great. And what's changing now? It's really designed to be part art, part theater. I think when I wrote about it, I described these Noma heads. Like, they're much like the dead heads, like of the Grateful Dead. Like, I'm not going to say it's a cult-like experience, but there are people who go again and again. I, I never went to Noma. I haven't been to very many of these kinds of places, just a handful in my life. One of the things that would stress me out if I ever was going to go to Noma would be how, what to eat during the day in the lead up to the meal. Yeah. And when a meal is that momentous, there's so much stakes attached to yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't want to walk in absolutely like fall down starving. No, that'd be a bad idea. Right, because then you just don't, you don't feel great. You have two sips of alcohol and yeah. you're ready to puke. Yeah. But obviously, of course, you don't want to go in there with uh, only half a tank to fill. The Noma heads will have a routine. In that, during that time, there was always a um, shawarma place that you went to afterwards. And so, so these you, people are going to Noma, dropping whatever it is, 500 bucks a head yeah. or more, and then they go out for I, shawarma? I heard that. I didn't do it. I heard it. It is a vegetarian menu. <laughs> and with mold tarts. I mean, it is what it is. When Adam went, the restaurant was doing an all-vegetarian menu, which included a dish of flowers marinated in pollen, shaped to look like a butterfly. There was a berry and tomato soup with barbecued thyme. And yes, that savory tart with fuzzy white mold. Bread's really good, I recall. <laughs> I think the butter is delicious. Like, the, boot, the, the wine is delicious. It's like... If you're worried about getting fed, these restaurants are not necessarily a place for you. I mean, I don't know that I've heard a, a more searing indictment. I'm not indicting anything. I'm indicting it. Go ahead. fact that after you're done, you have to go out for shawarma? That's what it is. You know, it's what it is. It's, what this, <laughs> it's just tweezer food. Tweezer food. Little dishes that are so fussy to assemble, the chefs use actual tweezers. But some people love that food. They rave about it. Millionaires take their private jets there. The wait list can grow to over a thousand names. When Adam was there, the waiter told him that butterfly made of flowers took 10 to 12 minutes to prepare, and they were making 120 of those a day. That's more than 22 hours of work every day to make just one of the many courses served. According to Renee Redzepi, even charging 500 bucks a head, it doesn't add up. And also, Adam sees Renee and chefs at that level going through what a lot of people went through over the past two years. Burnout. It's just exhausting. And COVID exhausted his generation of chefs. Everybody knows the brutal, exhausting business. And people have, uh, you know, you, you, you can only do it for so long. You know what he ought to add to the menu if it's too expensive to make all these butterflies? He should start serving shawarma. You know what? I shouldn't have told you that. <laughs> I would call that extremist fine dining. I think our understanding of what fine dining is is kind of mixed up 
This is Vivian Howard. She hosted the award-winning PBS show, A Cook's Life. And for 15 years, she ran a fine dining restaurant in Eastern North Carolina called Chef and the Farmer. The average bill there was about $60 a person, but like Noma, it focused on seasonal local ingredients. And also like Noma, people traveled to eat there. And like Noma, it struggled to be sustainable. Last year, Vivian had to close Chef and the Farmer. For years, I've just read this writing on the wall and, you know, why is this so hard? How have I taken two of the most joyful things humans can do, which is cook for people and provide them hospitality, and how have I made it such a miserable life? Not just for myself, but for everyone that I engage with in the restaurant business. The restaurant closed temporarily during COVID, but that wasn't the primary reason they shut down for good. It was more about the day-to-day pressures that many restaurants face when trying to keep up in the world of fine dining. Restaurants like mine, restaurants that are cuisine-focused, service-driven restaurants that are largely only open for dinner service, are like doctor's offices where there are doctors and nurses and lab techs and front desk people and janitors working in the office, getting paid all day long, but they can only see patients for four hours of that 10 to 12-hour workday. The output of labor and cost does not match the revenue coming in. It's so miserable in large part because we do have that short window to bring in revenue. So we have to jam people in. It's a high-stress situation. Every night is an emergency, but, you know, we're not saving lives. But how much of this is new? There were high-end restaurants 50, 75 years ago that were the toast of the town all over the place. And look, the restaurant business was never easy. I, I've never heard anyone say that it was. But but did something change? Or was it always this hard and people just didn't talk about it before? So, you know, I challenge you when you say that, you know, 50, 75 years ago, there were restaurants like this all over the place. I think largely you would have found them in hotels. I have two restaurants in a hotel. And, you know, that's one reason that I can see the difference between a restaurant like Chef and the Farmer that's only open for dinner versus a restaurant in a hotel that is running on all cylinders and making use of its equipment basically 24 hours a day. Because in a hotel, you know, you have in-room dining, you have banquets, you have breakfast, you have, you know, all the things. Um, So it is working efficiently. And if you look back to the high-end restaurants and the, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, many of them were in hotels. So they had that greater infrastructure to support the high-end food and to support the labor it took to do it. Part of what changed in that time is sort of the ascent of foodie culture, food media, food TV, and then followed by social media, and followed by food tourism, food as status, which it always was, but even more so now. Food as theater. Right, all of these things, partly because of foodie culture, partly because we're working more, we're going out to eat a lot more, and a lot more restaurants per capita have opened in the last 30 or 40 years. You're making me wonder, like, maybe part of the problem is that there are too many restaurants. 100%. We have been sitting on a restaurant bubble for... I would say, close to a decade. I've been waiting for it to burst. And part of the issue is that people like me, people who, you know, build a reputation, get accolades, 
in this fine dining scenario realized like, oh gosh, now I have to make money to keep this engine going. So I'm going to open a burger joint, a pizza joint, a taco joint, but they're not joints. They're kind of high end because I am Vivian Howard, right? So, so <laughs> you know, where you would have one restaurant per restaurant tour, now you have six, right? you know, and it's contagious. It feels like, okay, I'm at this level and this is what he's doing and this is what she's doing and like, okay, so I need to do this. So yeah, we, I, I totally agree with you. We have been on a bubble of sorts for some time and it's bursting. It's true that a lot of restaurateurs have moved to fast, casual concepts where they can serve a lot of people quickly. That format is easier to replicate so they can grow revenue by opening more locations. But still, I want to understand why it's so hard for fine dining restaurants to make money, even at their higher prices. I asked Vivian to walk me through one of her dishes at Chef and the Farmer. The Anson Mills flatbread. Flatbread with looking glass creamery feta, garden pea shoots, and smoked acorn squash. This is listed as a share plate, so it's like finger food appetizer, I'm imagining. Now, according to this menu from 2020, you're charging $14 for it, but what would you say this would cost today? Today, I would argue I would charge $21 for it. Okay. And I'd probably have to argue with someone about that, but... <laughs> right, right. So so walk me through the process. Let's break down this dish. so Because I think that average diners, and, and myself included, like don't really fully understand why a flatbread would cost $21. That flatbread, we do a three-day ferment. Someone on our pastry team is working to start that flatbread three days before we serve it. You have the looking glass creamery feta, which is a North Carolina cheese that has to be sourced from a different purveyor than the purveyor that you get the flour and the yeast to make the flatbread. There's someone that receives deliveries all day in a restaurant like this. It's not a low, you know, skilled person. This is the person that is responsible for making sure that the fish looks good when it comes in. That same person makes sure the garden pea shoots, all 15 pounds of them, come in and are up to standard. Then the prep cook washes the pea shoots, then goes through and cleans every single pea shoot because there's a piece that has to be discarded. Then another farmer brings in the acorn squash. They have to be washed, cut in half, cut out the seeds. All of this is going into compost, which then has to be dealt with, okay? That's another job. Another job. We fire up our smoker, and then we smoke the acorn squash, then we let those cool, then we scoop that out, and then someone makes a like a smooth sauce with it that likely has aromatics that have been poached in olive oil with herbs. Once all those ingredients are in place on the line, you know, 30 minutes before service, we fire flatbread to make sure that the dough rises and it works properly, taste the flatbread, talk about the flatbread with the staff, and then sell that flatbread. And what percentage of the people in today's dining world who eat that flatbread do you think appreciate how much work went into it? Maybe... What is the percentage of people that work in restaurant kitchens? (laughs) (laughs) That plus 1%. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I mean, it's even hard for me to appreciate it when I'm eating in other people's restaurants because our job as chefs is to bedazzle you. We want the experience to be magical and memorable and joyous. 
Oh my God, I would be so upset if I worked so hard on something and someone just shoved it in their face and, and barely noticed. Well, that's why we are not in the dining room. That's why you can't, we don't <laughs> sit. <laughs> One time uh, I was pregnant with twins and I was working the lawn and someone complained about something and I demanded that I go out in the dining room and the whole staff is like, oh no, no, please don't. And I went out and I, my hands were shaking so bad and I was so angry. I never was allowed to go back out. <laughs> what was the person upset about and what did you say? I think it was that it was not cooked properly. This was 12 years ago and I was enraged and probably blacked out from it. (laughs) (laughs) So I I have no idea, but they complained. Right. And I responded. Do you remember what you said? I remember standing there and watching my hands shake as I berated them. Oh my God. That that must be like every chef's dream though, to do that at least once in your life. Yeah. Well, I mean, I still remember, I think about it when I'm like having little moments where I want to have a fit. I think about how that felt and it was good. (laughs) Coming up, I talked to Vivian and Adam about whether it's fair for restaurants that charge hundreds of dollars a meal to not pay some of the people making the food. And then I asked them if fine dining should exist at all. That's coming up. Stick around. It's time to open up a can of advertisements. In the Pashman household, we're already big fans of Tillamook shredded cheese. In fact, I used it in developing many recipes in my cookbook. And now I'm getting into their ice cream. Tillamook ice cream is made with more cream, so you get smooth and dreamy scoops each time. You may not realize it, but this is why a lot of the store-bought ice cream doesn't taste the same as what you get in, like, in an ice cream parlor. But with Tillamook, they don't skimp on the cream. These people know dairy, okay? Tillamook makes a great, rich vanilla ice cream with real crushed vanilla bean seeds. They have an Oregon strawberry, sweet strawberry ice cream with ripe Oregon strawberry pieces. The one that I really love is the mudslide flavor, a smooth chocolate ice cream with a ribbon of rich fudge and chocolatey chips. You want to move the spoon around to get fudgy and chocolatey chips and the ice cream all in the same bite each time, and it's just so, so nice. And like I said, I just trust Tillamook when it comes to dairy. They make over 200 different dairy products, and the brand is farmer-owned and led by dairy experts. Find Tillamook ice cream near you at Tillamook.com. That's T-I-L-L-A-M-O-O-K.com. I enjoy a nice glass of wine, but I don't pretend to be an expert in wine. I usually just want a wine that's high quality, delicious, and not too expensive. And to me, that's Bogle Family Vineyards. And here's the thing about Bogle. This is a third-generation family-owned winery from California that makes exceptional wines for about 10 bucks a bottle. Bogle wines consistently earn best-buy designations and high ratings from wine enthusiasts. And let me tell you something. The folks at Wine Enthusiast, they drink a lot of wine. They drink a lot of fancy, expensive wine. And yet they still keep giving great ratings to Bogle. And Bogle Vineyards has so many different kinds of wine. Whatever your mood, whatever you're eating, there's a wine for you. they got this great Pinot Grigio that's crisp and fruity, goes well with spicy foods, with fish. They have a classic Chardonnay that's balanced, amazing, with a pork tenderloin or butter chicken. I like to take that Chardonnay and do what Jacques Pepin taught me, a couple of ice cubes in your glass of Bogle. If Jacques Pepin says it's okay, then it's okay. And there's the Bogle Pinot Noir, refined and elegant with bright fruit and about as food-friendly as a red wine can be. You're not going to believe it's only $10. Neither will your friends if you tell them. So pick up a few bottles of Bogle wherever you buy your favorite wines. Please drink responsibly. Are you ready for warmer weather? I know I am. But is your wardrobe ready? I just stocked up on spring and summer clothing at Quince. And let me tell you something. I'm feeling great about everything I got. I got a couple of short sleeve button-down shirts, polo shirt, some shorts, 
Everything feels great. It's super high quality. And I can't believe how much stuff I got at a reasonable price. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Whatever you need for the spring and summer, Quince has your back. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash sporkful for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash sporkful to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash sporkful. I just got a very wonderful shipment of goodies from the folks at Reese's. And let me tell you something. These people remain the absolute worldwide leaders in bringing together chocolate and peanut butter. Of course, we know that peanut butter cups remain transcendent. But have you tried the Reese's Sticks? Their wafers with peanut butter in between each wafer, all coated in chocolate? I mean, the combination of sweet chocolate and salty peanut butter just brings people joy, and the folks at Reese's do it better than anyone. So shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you, found wherever candy is sold. Welcome back to The Sporkful. I'm Dan Pashman. Hey, I got a question for you. Do you have a conflict in your home kitchen, a grievance about groceries? Is there a food dispute that you have with a friend or loved one that's tearing your eating world apart? Or maybe it just annoys you a little? If you answered yes to any of those questions, I want to hear from you. We're going to be recording some call-in shows, and I would love to have you call in so some friends and I can help you work through these issues. Send me an email at hello at sporkful.com, and we might just feature you in an upcoming episode. Again, that's hello at sporkful.com. Look forward to hearing from you. Thanks. Okay, back to the show. And I want to note that we reached out to Noma chef Rene Redzepi, but he declined to talk with us. We were told he was too busy working on an upcoming pop-up in Kyoto. Anyway, one of the big criticisms about Noma is that the restaurant has relied on unpaid interns for years. According to the New York Times, this could be 20 to 30 people working full-time, sometimes 16-hour days, for free. After a lot of criticism, Noma finally began paying interns back in October. But this has been common practice in fine dining for decades. The chef Rob Anderson wrote in The Atlantic, quote, The truth is that the kind of high-end dining Noma exemplifies is abusive, disingenuous, and unethical. Chefs know it, but continue to imitate Red Zeppi. The food media know it, but continue to celebrate his kind of food. Wealthy diners know it, but continue to book tables en masse. If not at Noma, then at comparable destination restaurants around the world. I asked Adam Platt for his take on that quote. Well, I would argue with that at my peril, but I would also say, ain't nobody forcing anybody to work at Noma. They're not doing anything that uh, they're not doing of their own free will. They can all quit anytime they want. I mean, if you've worked at Noma for a certain amount of time and you've soaked up that atmosphere and you've put it on your resume, you may not be getting paid for it, but it's worth a lot, okay? And this is the same for a lot of other restaurants here. It's always been the way. Whether it's a fair system, the answer is probably not. Whether it's unethical, I don't know. So I'm not defending it. I'm just saying it's a tough environment and they should earn a fair wage. The way Adam sees it, if you're concerned about exploitation in restaurant kitchens, unpaid internships at fancy restaurants shouldn't be at the top of your list. There are a lot of more brutal practices in in everyday kitchens that people should be paying attention to. They're savage environments which take advantage of people and are petri dishes for bullying and inequities of all kinds. They have been for a long time. 
Vivian Howard began her career as an unpaid intern at WD-50 in New York, which was a buzzy molecular gastronomy restaurant owned by the chef Wiley Dufresne. So Vivian knows firsthand what that experience is like. You know, there was a period of time where the feeling, I thought at least, and this was like 2002, three, and beyond, where in order to get my foot in the door at a top kitchen, which is what I was really fixated on, I had to work for free. Everybody did. Every, no matter if you had gone to culinary school or whatever, everybody had some free labor under their belt in that setting. With the rise of Noma in particular, it became, you know, the norm to travel around and get like a few months at certain places in the world under your belt. And that became your resume. You know, what's interesting is that over the years, I've gotten many resumes from people whose track has been this. And for me, it's always been off-putting rather than like a gold feather in your cap. I'm more interested in someone who's looking like they want to stay somewhere and looking for someone who is not about like checking off boxes. The free labor thing, I think, at this point, represents a certain type of restaurant that is a resume builder or has been a perceived resume builder for a certain type of aspiring chef. Vivian says she pays everyone who works in her kitchen, including interns. Considering that she went through this system and is now on the other side as a restaurant owner, I was curious if she thought that these unpaid internships, also known as stages, are fair. I don't have a problem with that, if that's your choice. No one's forcing anybody to go and stage at Noma. If someone wants to have Noma on their resume and they choose not to get paid for it, then I don't have a problem with that. It's not necessarily free labor because they're getting something that they want, that they've sought out and that they feel right. is valuable. Maybe it's not dollars. But if someone like Renee Redzepi is making presumably a nice, a very nice living. The reports are unclear exactly how much he's made in his 20 years running the world's number one restaurant. But by all accounts, I've seen he's doing just fine. Is there something sort of unethical about him making a lot of money while not paying almost half his staff? No, I don't think so. Honestly, I think that if you were to really look at the ways that uh, Rene Redzepi has made money. It's probably not from the price tag of the restaurant. It's probably from, you know, sponsorships and other, you know, media deals and that sort of thing. And I, I, I can tell that he's a really hard worker. And do I think that that model of, you know, quote, free labor in extremist fine dining restaurants, do I think it's sustainable? I don't necessarily. But I don't think that it's Renee's fault that it's happening by any means. Of course, one big issue with these unpaid internships isn't just about how people are treated, but who gets to be an intern. Who can afford to fly to a different city and work for free for weeks or months, and who can't? Many of these former interns go on to open their own restaurants, and of course, they tend to hire people they've crossed paths with in their travels. So it really affects who gets to work in fine dining kitchens and who doesn't. Structural issues like these are part of the reason we're seeing stories about whether fine dining should exist at all. But it's not the only reason. As I said, there's also been a cultural shift away from fine dining, especially for a younger generation interested in food. 
Adam Platt says two years ago, he had an extra spot at a table at 11 Madison Park, one of the fanciest restaurants in the country. He asked if anyone in the office at New York Magazine wanted to go with him. This would be a free meal at one of the best-known fine-dining restaurants around. He said once upon a time, this would be an offer that his foodie co-workers would have fought over. But now, no one wanted to go. He finally got his colleague Rachel Sugar to go with him. They sat down for the multi-course, all-plant-based menu with dishes like heirloom tomato tea infused with lemon and thyme, pine nut puree and green tomato relish with coriander. And they both agreed it was incredibly delicious. But then the bill came, and with drinks, the total was about $900. And she was like, are you kidding me? This is actually unethical. And she was just mortified. She felt it, she felt it like as a practicing vegetarian, as a vegan, she felt that this obscured the the natural joy of that genre and of the enjoyment of vegetables. But what was interesting was me, the big, you know, the giant beef eating, you know, fatso was like sort of defending this this restaurant. And she was like, are you kidding, you know, kidding me? That's what we're getting for that? And that's that's how that much of that generation thinks about it. What exactly did she think was unethical? It's just too expensive. It's just the money. This generation of people who'd grown up in the city eating very good food all over the place, just not interested in it. They're not interested in the, the latest fashion. In fact, they don't think it's fashionable. It's not fashionable. I mean, you're interviewing a dinosaur here, by the way. Well, you know. <laughs> So let's get my credentials on the table. <laughs> if fine dining restaurants like 11 Madison Park disappeared tomorrow, Adam's feeling is a lot of the generation after him wouldn't miss it much. Chef Vivian Howard sees the same attitude among diners. Yeah, like why, why have fine dining at all when you could just have fast casual and, you know, counter service? But Vivian sees a lot of value in high-end restaurants. She feels like these can be places full of creativity and innovation and art. A lot of us are dialed in on quality and craftsmanship and food that is interesting and tastes great. And I think that is what the fine dining experience does. And so I think in order for us to continue to have people that are producing things on a small level and that's not just like mass produced, uh, we have to have these intimate experiences in dining rooms. We need the fine dining stage. It's culture for the pleasure of experiencing culture. It's like any art form, you know, like we don't need paintings on the wall or great sculptures or beautiful bridges. Like, why not just build every bridge to be the most basic, cheapest, most functional thing to get you from the mainland to the island? Well, because like looking at a beautiful bridge makes life more enjoyable. I think what you're basically saying is like there's a place for these kinds of restaurants because there's a place for interest in culture that moves ideas forward and that provides pleasure to people. Yeah, 100%. And just because we're pointing out like, okay, parts of this model do not work. There are parts of it that work for many of us all the time. Like, I don't want fine dining to go away because I love sitting in dining rooms and being on the <laughs> other side of it. Right. So it's like, how can we just be smarter and continue to do that? I hate that everybody's like, is fine dining dead? Like, why does everything have to be dead? Why can't it, <laughs> why can't it just be, like, evolving? And, right. you know, why can't we just try to fix it? I don't know. <laughs> Vivian is still hoping to reopen Chef and the Farmer. She's just looking for ways to make it more sustainable. And she may be onto something. 
She's currently using the restaurant's kitchen to prepare high-quality meals she sells from 10 refrigerated vending machines placed all around eastern North Carolina and the Raleigh-Durham area. The meals are things like breakfast casserole, roast chicken roulade, and monkey bread. Each meal serves four and costs $25 to $85. The fridges can be moved to higher traffic areas, and they're open 24 hours a day, which means they're always able to generate revenue. With the fridges, what I'm doing is I'm growing my revenue significantly without expanding my footprint. My goal for when we reopen is to have Chef and the Farmer still provide a luxurious experience, one that I think reigns true in 2023, but we're only going to do that three nights a week. So some of her staff will work nights, but not every night. And the rest of her staff can work daytime hours making meals for the fridges, which solves another problem restaurateurs like Vivian face. You train someone, they get really good at their job, but as they get a little older, they don't want to work nights and weekends anymore. They often leave the industry. Now, Vivian can offer them more daytime hours. And to use her doctor's office metaphor, she can see patients all day. I'm looking at it differently in that the restaurant is going to exist to support the people that work in it, rather than me trying to gain enough profit so that I can open another restaurant. I would like for us to gain enough profit so that everyone in the restaurant can continue to lead better lives. Adam Platt said that it's a thing that, like, uh, sometimes after people eat at Noma, they're still hungry. They have to, like, go out and get shawarma or something. When Chef and the Farmer reopens, if I come to eat there, am I going to have to go out for shawarma after? Well, Dan, you would never be able to go out for shawarma in rural eastern North Carolina, so I hope Anything, not. Anything, whatever. Am, Abs- am I going to have to go out for barbecue after? No, absolutely not. People leave there and basically have to roll out the door. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I've never once heard of anyone going to Bojangles after. <laughs> well, that's the kind of fine dining I can get behind. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> That was Chef Vivian Howard and food writer Adam Platt. If you want to learn more about their work, we'll have links in our show notes and on our website. Don't forget to send us your food disputes. If there's a food issue that's coming between you and a friend or loved one, I want to hear about it. Email me at hello at sporkful.com. Thanks. This show is produced by me along with senior producer Emma Morgenstern and producer Andres O'Hara. Our editor is Tracy Samuelson. Our engineer is Jared O'Connell. Music help from Black Label Music. The Sporkful is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Nora Ritchie and Colin Anderson. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman. And this is Charlotte in Cologne, Germany, reminding you to eat more, eat better, and eat more better. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. 
And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-missed promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com.